The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Um, today's reading is from 1 Peter chapter 2, 13 through 25. Um, it's on page 1015 in the Bibles under the chairs, or you can follow along on the screen behind me. Um, be subjected for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should be put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Good morning. Uh, I have, most of you know, a two silence I've had in three weeks. What's interesting, though, is the majority of our energy uh, is with our two-and-a-half-year-old right now. And so, unbeknownst to me, underneath my nose, she has become a master negotiator. And <laughs> this is a conversation I had about a week ago. I, it was like time to go to bed, and uh, she wanted to watch TV, and she can't say her L's. So I said, okay, baby, it's time to go night-night. Let's get our stuff together. She said, wait, 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 daddy, wait, wait. I go inside, I get a popsicle, and watch a little bit of TV. Sound good deal? I said, no, that sounds like a bad deal. She goes, no, Daddy, it good deal. And then she walks to go get a popsicle like she just closed the deal. And I look at my wife, I'm like, what? And she said, you do the same thing. I don't know if I resent or resemble that remark, but either way, I started thinking, though, is we all sort of do that, meaning proposition ourselves and negotiate our circumstances to be for our own benefit, right? Whether we mean to or whether we know we are, we're always sort of working different angles to make sure we're the chief benefactor of said circumstances. So I can't blame her for doing that. And I will say, though, uh, sanctification is at a premium at our house right now. Uh, today was one of those days I thought I was just going to be like, I walk right in, I'm ready to preach, because I don't think I can get here. Where Peter is instructing the reader, and he's instructing us, to actually think drastically different about life. Not in such a way that it, we think about it inwardly focused, 
but we think about it distinctly outwardly focused. And so we'll be rounding out chapter two today. Before we do, let me pray for us. Let me bless our time together, um, and then we can start. Heavenly Father, we give thanks uh, for all that you are to us. Um, Lord, the temptation is to read this particular set of verses or read the Bible and, 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 and think about only how it may or may not apply or affect us. And so inevitably that might lead us to either write off or tune in to certain parts of Scripture. Lord, but we know that the whole counsel of Scripture is for our benefit. And that the whole counsel of Scripture is a testament to your grace and mercy through your Son, Jesus, redeeming a people. And so we pray whatever parts of this text need to hit different parts of our hearts that you would do that. Lord, my temptation is to try to communicate well or preach a good sermon. That is of no gain unless we are faithful to your text. And so we pray that we would uncover what Peter meant then and what, through your Holy Spirit, he means to us to see now. Um, and Lord, that we would, we would leave change. Lord, that we would live differently because of what we think about this morning. So we ask for these mercies in your name. Amen. So it's been about three weeks or so since we've been in First Peter. We took a pause over Easter and Palm Sunday. And just as a sort of recap, we, we are finishing chapter 2, and Peter's writing this letter to Christians, really Jews and Gentiles, who have been dispersed from the capital city of Jerusalem and now reside in places like what we would now know as Turkey and Asia Minor, a coal letter, uh, with real tangible, sort of gritty applications to how we ought to be living. And today in our text, verses 13 through 25, which Kate read, he turns the the knobs even tighter on practical theology. And what what we want to do before we think about what the text is asking us to think about is get some understanding as to why he wrote verses 13 through 25. So verses 13 and 25 are only informed by verses 9 through 12. Let me just read them to you for a second. And we are going to be using our Bibles, so there's some underneath the chairs, or if you have them on your phone, you'll want to get those out. But you are, this is verse 9, 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Behold, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. When God is meeting with Moses on Mount Sinai, he says, Exodus 19.5, he says, I'm going to make Israel a kingdom of priests. Not, not priests in the sense that that's their vocational function, right? Like Aaron or the Levites or his sons, but priests in that they were going to be the people that were charged with with mediating and communicating God's presence 
and God's blessings to all of the nations around them. And so they would be a kingdom set apart, right? A royal priesthood, a group of people designed to communicate the character and nature of the God of Israel. And so Peter has this in mind when he's writing to these Jews and Gentiles that the new Israel, the church, is now charged with that same responsibility to communicate and mediate and perpetuate in our actions and in our words the blessings and character and nature and presence of God to a lost world. So it makes sense then that he says there at the end of verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify your God on the day of visitations. And then he transitions right there. Essentially, therefore, be subject to the laws of every human institution. Right? He goes right into the practical ways in which Christians ought to be living differently. And this isn't an exhaustive uh, section on Christian living, but it is very pointed. And what's interesting, I think, about God's charge to the people of Israel to honor and obey the covenant that he made with them, you will be my people and I will be your God. If you obey, there's blessings. If you disobey, there's cursings. As we know that, in fact, they were incredibly unfaithful. They were incredibly unrighteous. In fact, the very people that they were meant to be planted amongst and to permeate the aroma of God too, they actually did the opposite. They joined in, right? Moses is on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, and what are they doing? Building golden calves. And we see this over and over and over in Israel's history. And so there is certainly a, a bend with Peter's instruction here that knows that the temptation of Christians is to not live in a holy way, is to live in a rather unrighteous way because of the surroundings and the systems of the world that we are in. You know, it's, it's sort of like, uh, if you're a U.S. citizen, you are subject to U.S. laws, right? Tax laws, codes of conduct, all the laws, the Constitution, everything. Now, if you go travel abroad, you don't somehow denounce your U.S. citizenship. You are still subject to those laws. But there's also a system or a group of laws in the country that you're visiting, right, that you also have to obey those laws. Well, our citizenship, and we know this from Paul's, or Paul's writings, our citizenship is in heaven, right? That's why he says, you are sojourners and exiles. This is not your country. This is not your home. Your allegiance does not lie here. It lies somewhere else. However, we are in a set of world systems that require obedience. And they're not obedience specifically to the world's systems, but obedience to that who allows those world systems to be in place. And so today's text, verses 13 through 25, let's think about this. The theme, the, 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 the thrust of this text, I think, is how should Christians live? And the answer is differently. So we'll look at what, what specifically should we be living differently in, why, 
and how. What, why, how. That's the flow of where Peter's going and where we're going to go this morning. So what? There's a number of very specific and instructional commands on how we should live differently. We see it right there at the beginning in verse 13, don't we? Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So Peter has specifically in mind, using the phrase governors, emperor, supreme, the specific structures of the Greco-Roman Empire, right? He, he is thinking specifically about the way in which government is carried out in that space and time. But it also is to us specifically that we are to honor the authorities over us. And we hear that. The, the most famous text uh, for uh, honoring the law of the land, right, is Romans 13.1, obey the law of the land. In fact, I'll just read it real quick. You guys don't know pressure of trying to find a Bible verse in front of all of you. It's like, where's Romans? Is it after Genesis? Okay, Romans 13.1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So God has said, and Peter has said be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. We are, and, and, and be subject is actually too soft for what the instruction here is. It actually means to submit and obey. That we ought to submit and obey every human institution that God has allowed to stand. We're going to come back to why before you guys start rolling your eyes. We see, I mean, he keeps going. Verse 16, we are to live as a people who are free and as servants of God. All right, so he commands us to obey the authorities, obey and submit to the authorities we see, to live as servants, and really the language there is, is more like bond servants or slaves or indentured servants. Live as if you are bound to God in service. And then verse 17, he just rips them right off, doesn't he? Honor everyone. That means we ought to treat with respect and dignity every person regardless of their political, their social, which we're, we're, we're honoring them is not on their agreement with us. The basis for their honor is because they've been made in the same image that we've been made in. And so they deserve our honor because God deserves our honor. And then he goes on to say, don't just honor everyone, love the brotherhood. And Peter's the only author in the New Testament that uses that phrase brotherhood. It's the brothers and sisters, the family of faith. And he doesn't simply say honor the brotherhood. He says love the brotherhood or love the brothers and sisters. Love those that are in the family of faith. There's a particular and really a peculiar type of love and affection that we are to have for those that call Christ Lord. And so you really see it sort of starting to build. So he says, honor everyone, 
honor and love those in the household of faith. And then he goes on to say, fear God. Honor, love, and fear God. Right? And he makes very specific that honor and love is righteousness. Instructing them to fear and to have reverence for the one who determines existence and non-existence. The one who determines authority and non-authority. The one who determines what is and what is not. And he doesn't end there, which is, I think this is interesting. So he says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So he doesn't just ask us to obey and submit to our rulers. He also asks us to honor them. What would it look like if the Christians in this country actually honored and obeyed the authorities, regardless of political affiliation? What is verses 13 through 25 presenting to us? How should Christians live differently? Anyone can honor and obey those whom they care for. It takes a different kind of allegiance and a different kind of motivation to honor, obey, and submit those who stand for nothing we believe in. The basis on which we honor, obey, and submit to our authority is not on their own credentials. And it's not on whether they are evil or good. And you, you, if you have a boss at work, you don't just decide to not go to work because your boss is evil. Now, if your boss asks you to do evil, that's where we have scriptural authority to refuse. Right? Just because he is or she is evil doesn't give you or I an excuse to not honor, obey, and submit. And so wherever you are on the political landscape, here's what 1 Peter tells us. It doesn't matter that we are to honor, obey, and submit to our authorities. And so we start, verses 13 through 17 starts at the governmental structure, right? How to be a good citizen. Peter then transitions in verse 18 through husbands and wives. So he's starting big in the societal order and narrowing it down. Verses 18 through 20. These are more instructions for holy living from Peter. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Peter is acknowledging slavery here. And while slavery in the Roman Empire was slightly different than what we know to be between the 17th and 19th century in America, it was still grossly the same. And here's what's important when we're reading our Bibles is to understand just because the Bible may not overtly in this text scorn something like slavery, it does not mean it condones it. In 1 Timothy 1.10, in Revelation 21, it overtly condemns human trafficking and slavery as evil and sinful. And so simply because the author is communicating information about the time does not mean the Bible agrees with it. And we would, we would be misinformed 
if we read our Bibles in that way. And so while there is slavery, and Peter is suggesting, and is exhorting, and is instructing slaves, servants, bondservants, to obey and respect their masters, and not just the ones that make it easy, but the ones that actually make it incredibly difficult. So Peter is asking them to submit and obey to even those that govern harshly and with evil intentions. Which ultimately leads, which is what we see in verse 20, to suffering. Those are the what's. But why? why? Why would he ask us to do this? Why would Christ, through Peter, ask us to do this? And why would we? I think we get those answers. Why would we obey, submit, honor authorities, good and evil? Why would we live lives that are intensely outwardly focused and not concerned with self? Why would we live lives of deference and love and, and fear towards God? I think the first place to answer is back in Exodus 19. God said, you were once no one, and I made you someone. You were once nothing, and I made you something. There was no Israel until God formed it through Abraham, who was a pagan. God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that formed the nation of Israel. And so God literally made a nation, a people, a royal priesthood out of nothing. And he says, that nation, that people, has to be different than every other people. Right? You see glimmers of that with Noah in the ark. Noah and his family were distinctly different than the rest of the world. And we could go on through Old Testament after Old Testament story. And so the people of God are meant to be different, to look different, to act different different, to smell different. And it's in our difference that we not only communicate where our hope and affections lie, but we also point out the lack of hope and affection that those who don't trust in the same God that we do lie. And so Peter's suggesting here that even, right, we see this back in Luke 6, that even heathens, even pagans love those that love them. How much harder is it to love those that do evil to you or persecute you? Because it's a different kind of love. And regularly, Christ calls us to an extra kind of action. Right? It's not just love your neighbor, but it's love those that steal, persecute, and take from you. It's not just honor people that honor you. It's honor everyone. Right? He's calling us to a deeper action, a deeper way of living in everything. Romans 12.10 says that we ought to outdo one another in showing honor. We ought to be the chief honorers. We ought to be known for the way in which we love, honor, obey, and submit. 
And I can tell you, you know, when, I, when Randy first gave me the text for this week, I'm like, you know, I was not thrilled about it. Um, and then I started thinking, I'm like, you know, I don't, I don't think the first thing people say about me, man, that guy, he likes to obey, submit, and honor people. And it's on one hand, it's a little self-deprecating humor, but on the other hand, it's sad. Because I claim Christ, and Christ saved me 13 years ago. Why am I not known for honoring, loving, obeying, and submitting? And he tells us even further that why we should do these things, this is verse 20, for what credit is it if when you sin you're beaten for it and you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this example. So why would we endure injustice? Why would we honor, obey, and submit? Why would we deal with uh, individuals around us who promote evil? It's because it's exactly what Christ did. And it says, if you read it, for this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Now, one way to read that is that Christ also suffered for you, as to leave you an example. And we should read it that way. Christ is our chief example. We should also read it another way. Christ also suffered for you. For you. Not namely that he suffered instead of you having to suffer, but he suffered in order to purchase you. He suffered for you. There's a scene in Psalm chapter 110 where, where Christ has ascended into heaven. He's been crucified, risen. And the, the author is writing about this scene, about what it must be like in the courts of heaven as Christ, the king, comes walking back in with, with death and sin at his disposal. And the, the champion of heaven comes waltzing back in and, and takes his position on the throne. And at that point, Christ begins to receive the prize for which he suffered. He suffered for you. Verse 3 of Psalm 110, your people will offer themselves freely. We are the prize for which Christ suffered. He's not merely our example of good behavior, but he's also the chief reason in which we return in action what we could not justify ourselves in. Right? We return in outward action what we inwardly could not purchase. And all of those truths are glorious, they're wonderful. We have to spend time thinking and meditating on them. But how many of us know that those motivations don't last very long? And it's the truth. Right, we could spend the next 30 minutes exalting in and marinating in and celebrating what it means that Christ saved us from and what he saved us to. 
And that would be a good sermon. And we would all benefit in our souls from that. But an hour from now, when you're faced with doing righteous deeds, that's the last thing you're going to think about. It's who we are. So Peter's addressed to us to this point what we ought to be doing, what sort of actions and deeds and, and different living we ought to be doing, why we ought to be doing them, but he hasn't dealt with the heart yet. How do we actually do them? And we see that in verses 24 and 25. But before we go there, in, in this section of verses and in all of Scripture, we regularly see contrasts painted. Right? So, for example, it tells us in verse 16 that we ought to not essentially live to sin, but live to righteousness. Right? In verses 9 through 12, we see the difference between darkness and light. We see in Ephesians uh, the sons of disobedience and sons of obedience. We see in Romans 9, children of mercy and children of wrath. We see in Romans 5 that we are in Adam or we are in Christ. Right? Throughout all of Scripture, it's the back and forth, right? the good and evil. The dark and light. Since Genesis chapter 3, when a covenant is made with Adam, God has been perpetually, through the Bible, making covenants with men. And God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. And so covenants work like this. Is God makes a covenant with Adam... And what Adam does by way of honoring and obeying that covenant or disobeying, we all get the collateral damage from it. Right? Adam, in that instance, is our, our what was called covenant representative. Right? You play basketball, one of your teammates fouls, right? the whole team's penalized. Right? So every covenant that God has, make, we, has made, we see that you could, for example, live under King David. You could be a faithful Israelite who rejects polytheism and honors the only one and true God, who loves his wife and honors his children and obeys Caesar. But if David doesn't, your life as an Israelite is totally dead. Circumstances directly affect you and you're under the covenant. And so why that's supremely important in this text and where Peter's going is we know that all of us are not sinners because we sin. We are sinners because we are in Adam. That's not me, that's 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Romans 5, 12. Death in Adam, life in Christ. And this is an, this is a, this is a, this is an argument that church has been having for almost 1,500 years. In the 5th century, Augustine and Pelagius had an argument over what's called original sin, right? Are we born sinful or do we choose to be sinful? The Bible and Orthodox Christianity has affirmed for thousands of years that we are born sinful. Three, week, three and a half weeks ago, at about 3 a.m., my second daughter was born. She was sinful at 
birth. Made or haven't made. But because we are in Adam as our covenant representative, who in Genesis chapter 3, him and Eve chose disobedience and sin. And we know that God has one rule with his covenants. If you obey, there's blessings. And if you disobey, there's cursings. And so here we are stuck in death, disobedience, and wrath as members of this covenant. So how in the world can we be stuck in this disobedience and then choose obedience? How can we do what verse, really 16 through 24, is asking us to do? And we read it right there. It's verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. How do we live righteously? It's in our union with Christ. So, this may be the most important doctrine in all of Christianity. Our union with Christ. Our union with Christ says, 2 Corinthians, the old has gone, the new has come. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification. And anytime you're reading scripture, if you read the New Testament, there's about a hundred different times where you hear this language. In Christ, with Christ, into Christ. What that says is that Christ, through his life and finished work, plucked us from our in Adam and now moved us to in him. And so this is Colossians 3, that our lives as Christians are now buried and hidden in Christ. And so everything that can be said about Christ can be said about us. Obedience to the law can also be said of us. Christ's death, where he paid the final and, 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 and primary debt and ransom for the sin, can also now be said of us. His resurrection, where he finally defeats sin and death can now be said of us. His ascension, where he goes and now regularly communicates and mediates in the presence of God, can now be said of us. His life and ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his heavenly session right now where he's reigning and advancing the gospel, all of the things that are given to Christ as the Son of God by right are given to us as a gift because we are now in Him. We are buried in Christ. So all of our lives, all of our actions, all of our positions before God are now seen only through the lens of our in Christness. 
So we are in Christ, Christ is in us, we are with Christ, and we are like Christ. And so it's easy, I think, for us to hear that and immediately go to the fact that we're justified. Right? If you're a Christian, you know that Christ died, paid the penalty of sin. It wasn't like debt forgiveness, it was total debt payment. And now you are made right before God. That's our justification. But us being in Christ doesn't just mean that we are now justified or made right. It also has to deal with our sanctification. So our in Christness is not merely about our justification, but it's also about our sanctification. That us being in Christ now informs, dictates, and regulates our sanctification or the ways in which we live. I want you to hear this verse, and, and this, is, this is probably on a bunch of coffee mugs, maybe even some of them that you have. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I am no longer identified in the heavenly places as Justin. I'm identified as in Christ. And all the spiritual blessings that flow to and from Christ as the Son of God now flow to me and those who call Christ Lord. This is Ephesians 1.3. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. So, we were not sinful because we sinned, but because we were in Adam. We are not righteous because we do righteousness. We are righteous both in the justification and in the continual living in sanctification. We are righteous because Christ is righteous. And so that's what the author intends in Isaiah when he says your righteous deeds are but filthy rags. Your righteous deeds are not righteous. And if we are in Christ, his righteous deeds now become our righteous deeds. So we were not sinful because we chose to sin, and we are not righteous because we choose righteousness. We aren't made righteous and then simply told to now go and do righteous things. We can't. That's Romans chapter 7. Paul says, the good things I want to do, I can't. We are made righteous because we are nestled tightly, safely, and securely in all the spiritual blessings that come with being in Christ. So, what does all that have to do with 1 Peter 2, 13-25? Verses 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. There is no sheep ever 
that has deviated from the flock, and then about a mile down the road says, listen, it's getting a little weird out here. Let me shut down this whole operation and go right back to the flock. Sheep don't do that. The only way the sheep comes back to the flock is if what happens? The shepherd goes and gets him, or her if it's a female sheep. Verse 25 puts our union with Christ on full display. He says, verses 24 and 25, he himself, Christ bore our sins on the tree so that we would no longer be subject to being in Adam, but so that now we would be in Christ. And because we're in Christ, we were all straying like sheep. We were wandering, choosing evil and sin and that which is repugnant to the nostrils of a holy God. And then, as the shepherds do, he goes and brings us back and hides us in him. When Jesus is talking in Matthew 25 about the vine and the branches, what does he say? Right? He says that the branches can only produce fruit if they stay in the vine. Your ability to carry out the instructions in 1 Peter have nothing to do with your ability to do righteous things. It has everything to do with God's completed righteousness. He's the vine. The only way the branches bear fruit is if they stay fastened tightly to the vine. The vine has union with the branches. The Christian has union with Christ. And it is only by nestling ourselves in him that we can ever see fruit produced in righteousness. And so 1 Peter is calling us to live to righteousness and die to sin. But he's not calling us to go and do righteous things. The call to righteous living is not the call to righteous doing. Because we can cast our eyes to him who have completed all righteousness. We then stare our gaze, as Hebrew says, towards the author and perfecter of our faith. So the call to righteous living is not the call to righteous doing. It's the call to hiding ourselves in him who completed all righteousness. And when the branches find their nourishment and nutrients in the vine in full season, what's produced? Fruit. Fruit is produced from the vine, not the branch. We cannot bear fruit in our own lives. And I even found in my own heart, I finished the sermon probably about 1 a.m. on Friday night. And I left my desk feeling heavy understanding, at least in part, it's just more things I got to do. Got to honor, obey, love. Don't forget to love. You got to fear as well. Right? It's a whole checklist of righteous living. And I'm just in 1 Peter 2. I didn't go into all the other scriptures. And it was weighty. And I didn't like it. And then God in his kindness at 1 a.m. on Friday reminds me, 
that I don't have any righteous deeds to commit. All of the righteous deeds have been committed. I don't have to honor an unjust emperor on my own who already did that for me. I don't have to love the brothers and sisters in the faith on my own accord. Who's already done that ultimately? I don't have to fear God in such a way that makes sure I, I, I'm, I'm holy because there's someone who's already done it perfectly. I don't have to endure suffering without opening my mouth because there's someone who already did it. And when we focus our attention on our union with Christ and all that's produced in that and from that, what we find is that the Holy Spirit waters our branches and fruit begins to fall. So my question, I think, is if there's no fruit, Satan wants you to go and do. Christ wants you to come and hide. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden with pharisaical righteousness, with sin, with deeds, with duty, and I will give you rest. And I will produce the fruit. And I will grow you in holiness call to righteous living, friends, in this text and in the Bible is not to do more. It's actually to do less. But that's much harder. We like symbi symbiotic relationships. We like the cause and effect of things. I'm reminded of the hymn, Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. All that we need for holy living, all that we need for all the instructions given, submitting to the rulers of the land, honoring everyone, being subject to honor the emperor, love the brotherhood, live to, to righteousness and die to sin. All of these things have already been done perfectly by him who fulfilled all righteousness. What would it look like if Christians lived differently? I think the question before the question is, what would it look like if Christians marinated on, reflected on their union with Christ? What would that produce? If you study one doctrine the next three months, study union with Christ. It is the bedrock from which salvation is built. And it is our how 1 Peter 2, 13 through 25, on how we're to live holy. Communion is not about reflecting inward. Communion is about reflecting on our union now with Christ. And if, if you're not a Christian, if you are not a Christian, your union is not with Christ. You have no spiritual blessings. You have no hope and you have no future inheritance. As was with all of us in here who are Christians at one point. But Christ accomplished the ability 
for that to not be true of you. But you can have a future and a hope and inheritance. You can have the type of rest and blessing. You can live a life that's actually not dependent upon your righteous or unrighteous actions. And that's not mitigating our responsibility because the true branch produces fruit. We see that in James. But how that fruit is produced makes a quietness before and with Christ. And if you're not a Christian, now would be a great time to reflect on what it might mean for you to enjoy the blessings of being a royal priesthood, a people set apart. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.